Welcome to this special edition of Book of Mormon Central Podcasts. Specifically, in our Rare Possessions podcast, we want to focus on this episode on the life and works of Richard Lloyd Anderson, who passed away on August 12, 2018. We're going to start off with a brief uh, eulogy, if you will, that, was, that comes from the Daily Herald that was written about him, and then we'll go into some of his other life and works. It says, forever a scholar, Richard Lloyd Anderson graduated with honors from this life on August 12, 2018. Born May 9, 1926 of Lloyd E. and Agnes Ricks Anderson in Salt Lake City, he began a lifetime of pursuit of knowledge. His early years were spent at BYU Training School in Pocatello and Ogden Public Schools. He served as a naval aviation radio man in World War II. Called to the LDS Northwestern States Mission from 1946 to 1949, he saw a need to teach the gospel with a more organized approach. Through encouragement of his mission president, Joel Richards, the teaching method became so successful it was adopted by other missions where it was widely known as the Anderson Plan and was published in seven different languages. Following his mission, he returned to Utah where he studied early Christian history, Greek and Latin, and became a sought-after teacher of missionary and religious courses at Brigham Young University. It was there he met his wife, Karma Rose Young, and they were married on May 22, 1951. He achieved a Juris Doctorate from Harvard Law School and a Ph.D. in Ancient History from the University of California, Berkeley. He had a long teaching career at BYU in Church History and Doctrine, Life of Christ, Ancient Scripture, Greek, and Roman History. He is an author of three books and hundreds of articles. He was a contributor and editor to many other publications, including the Joseph Smith Papers Project. At the time of his death, he was annotating the Oliver Cowdery Papers. Richard is survived by his wife, Karma Rose Young, and his children. And we want to offer our uh, respect uh, for his life and teachings now as a major contributor to many aspects of church history, but specifically as we'll get into with this particular paper that we are going to uh, focus on, a lot of work on the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. So, Jared, what have, you, what have been your thoughts, your impressions of Richard L. Anderson throughout your life? Well, I became aware of him on my mission uh, in 2008-2010 in Las Vegas, and I was listening to a talk then where someone referred to his book, Investigating the Book of, the Investigating the Book of Mormon Witnesses, uh, which went through, I believe, at least two editions, several editions, um, as outside of the scriptures, one of the most faith-promoting books they'd ever read. And when I read that after my mission, I obeyed the rules and uh, <laughs> bought it then, bought it after I got home. I found it to be true. And not only was faith-promoting, it was good scholarship. It was backed up. It was well-researched. And uh, he knew how to write. Yeah, my his name was one of those that I had seen a lot like is being quoted by a lot of people, but I never really uh, knew where to get into any of his works. But uh, when I was working on the documentary I, I made of Murder of the Mormon Prophet by LeGrand Baker, uh, we had Richard L. Anderson as one of the people that were talking about the life of Joseph and, and some of the things that happened in early church history. And so it was a opportunity for me to meet him, to talk to him, to get some picture, a, a very small sliver of his wisdom. And it was very impressive that he was a man that clearly had faith, but also that faith was informed by judicious study of the gospel and of history. He was not a, a, a man to uh, 
to take lightly his studies, but he he was always able to way, to find a way to integrate that study with his faith practice. It was it was a very good example of how those two things can fit together. Yep, it was. For those interested in reading some of his material, besides the article we'll be talking about on the podcast today, we have 28 of his articles or uh, books uh, in the Book of Mormon Central Archive right now that will be increasing as I can locate copies of them. But we have articles going back in the Ensign and the Improvement Area, going back decades, just wonderful work on the witnesses and their families and just presented wonderfully. Yeah. They kept coming back to him for a reason. I, I noticed as I was scrolling through that I'd forgotten that he wrote the Encyclopedia of Mormonism entries on uh, the witnesses and Oliver Cowdery, and he'd done very, very good work on there. Yeah, very well respected in a number of ways. And in this particular article that we're going to get into today, this was uh, printed in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. It's entitled, Attempts to Redefine the Experience of the Eight Witnesses. So this was printed in 2005 in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, which is put out by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute at BYU. And this is, I mean, why, why did we pick this one? Uh, we didn't pick it because it was, first of all, we'd like to thank the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Studies Absolutely. for allowing us to do the audio version of this and tribute to Richard. Uh, usually when we do an audio version of something, it's definitely in the public domain because uh, we tend to focus on the 19th century. But um, we picked this not because it was... Uh, brand new. It's 2005. It's 13 years old. But because it's an example, I think, of the quality of his scholarship. And um, and it's one of the newer ones that we had. And so we, there was plenty of options to choose from. But we picked this one because it, it focused on the witnesses. It, in my opinion, it showed the quality of his work. Yeah. So why, why are the witnesses even something worth talking about? It seems like a curious thing to some. Um, well, as he shows in the article, it's because people have attacked the experiences of the witnesses uh, since the 1830s. Uh, they attempt to redefine them in their own terms um, to make it something that they can pull down, to make them less, less usable credible. to uh, Latter-day Saints. And the differences between the three and the eight witnesses are rather interesting. I know sometimes we speak more of the three witnesses in Latter-day Saint culture, mm -hmm. but I have found that the eight witnesses actually hold quite a bit of, of weight because they are the least what we might call spiritual or religious or faith-based, they speak to the authenticity of the document itself, Yeah, which to a secular world, that matters. It does. And I know uh, one, Stanford, uh, one person going through their PhD program right now who's not of our faith but focuses on Mormon history, who has made said like the, the witnesses are what we have that keeps him awake at night more than anything else uh, thinking about... <laughs> And I hope he doesn't mind me sharing that. I don't think he listens to this podcast anyway. That's all right. So, but uh, it's what we have. I remember as a young man, I was probably like 13, and our neighbor was a lawyer, and uh, Kirk was his name. And uh, he was, he liked to, you know, try and you know, rile me up once in a while. And he started going, he goes, oh, I don't know about this Joe Smith fellow. And started going off. He goes, <laughs> who did he have backing him up? And I remember I ran home. Which is, if you know me, running me running anywhere is a miracle. <laughs> but uh, I ran home and I grabbed my scriptures. My mom's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Kirk said Joseph Smith didn't have any witnesses." And so I ran up there and I gave him the testimony of three and eight witnesses. He's like, "You know what? That's not bad." And that was a victory for thirteen year old me. Nice. Um, Look at you. Yep. And I was out of breath, but you know it happened. <laughs> but you did it. But I did it. And so yeah, the, yeah, the witnesses are. There's a reason that they that Joseph wanted their testimonies. And that the Lord wanted them. Mm -hmm. they, and they prophesied serve a, about them. Right. They, they serve a, a very divine purpose in that sense. So we have 
some of the theories addressed, I mean, there's been a number of things that people have leveled against the witnesses, but in this particular one, um, he addresses the idea that people have said that uh, Joseph didn't really let them touch the objects, even though they said they did. Um, but they also a visionary experience yes, that wasn't actually real. Much more similar to what the three witnesses claimed. Yeah. But they also put out this idea that they saw the plates because they were in a vision that was induced by enthusiasm or mind control. Or guilt or something, yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's some very, um, it feels an awful lot like we're trying to throw reasonable doubt onto them through suppositions, which is a terrible logical approach. And it's but, interesting to see that, uh, as Brother Anderson relates, that this was happening to the, the witnesses' faces, uh, relating Warren Parrish and Stephen Burnett and, and Kirtland telling Martin Harris, well, this is what you said. And Martin Harris is like, no, 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 I didn't say that. And they're like trying to disprove him with revelations and things that he said. Like, he's like, no, I know what I experienced. And he's trying to explain it. And um, we know Joseph said he believed language was a crooked and broken thing. And so he's trying to explain their spiritual experience and, and can't get it across. And you yeah. and you you really feel for Martin with what, uh, with what Richard Anderson explains in this paper. There's one particular area, and him, amongst others in this article, but... He talks about something called the Turley Report. Yes. What is the significance of the Turley Report? So Theodore Turley was appointed a church agent. Um, I want to say it was. Let me double check that it was either Nov, it was either Kirtland or uh, Missouri. Missouri. It remained as a church agent in Missouri, and he uh, he called John Whitmer on the carpet for inconsistency, and said, "I love this." He goes, uh, Whitmer asked, "Do you hint at me?" Turley replied, "If the cap fits you, wear it." All I know, you have published to the world that an angel to present this place to Joseph Smith. And it's, what's really interesting is, is Whitmer's reply is that he says, I now say I handled those plates. There was fine engravings on both sides. I handled them. And he described how they were hung, the, the rings, and they were shown to me by supernatural power. He acknowledged all. Truly asked him why the translation is not now true. And he said, I cannot read it. I do not know whether it is true or not. And I love that, that even at John Whitmer's worst, all he could say was, yeah, I can't read formed Egyptian. I don't know if this translation's accurate. So I thought that was fascinating. It's very honest. It's very honest. I mean, how, how is and he for supposed a time to... when he had no reason to be honest. Right. He's in front of his all of his friends now that he's left the church, and he's still saying, yeah, I saw those plates. It's a very interesting phenomenon as to how many witnesses left the church. It is. And yet— The three has a better ratio than the eight when it comes to that <laughs> for returning. But the the idea that I don't think did any of the eight ever deny their witness either. Um, I don't believe so. We don't seem to have a ready record of any of the eight that denied their witness of the Book of Mormon. No, some died. Well, they all died. No, no some died early. <laughs> some died early. Mortality, death comes for us all. That's the message we want to get out. You to get out of this today. Um, but <laughs> we'll cut that. But um, some died early, but all held and um. I think that's fascinating through extensive personal disaffection with Joseph, and they held to it. Well, we have some Incident family members. Go ahead. Let's say, incidentally, I, I roomed with Theodore Turley's uh, descendant, uh, another Turley in college, and we actually discussed this hmm. when we were roommates. So they had the, the family records of that, which was kind of cool. So Turley's hope was to do what with his report? I don't know. I, I think when he initially asked John Whitmer that, it was probably out of anger. Um, and frustration, and you can imagine why. I mean, they're in Missouri after all. But I think afterwards it was going, look, even after he's condemned the prophet, done everything else, he still can't deny the Book of Mormon. And so... He's not changing his statement. He's yeah. not 
disavowing what he said before. And that's, again, it's an interesting phenomenon when we talk about the witnesses that way. But we also have Hiram Smith, who, as one of the eight witnesses, you know, you could argue that he, like his brother, sealed their testimony with their blood. Samuel H. Smith died just weeks later Mm -hmm. um, in trying to... That image is sad to me because Samuel was one of the ones that brought Joseph's body back. He, yeah, he brought it back from I remember from I re- reread that in Saints this uh, past week, and that just broke my heart a little bit. Yeah, did he? I think just a week later, a week or two later that. Yeah, it was, well, maybe even a month yeah, after, was, but he, he essentially was sick and, yeah. and died from exposure, if you will. But uh, it also made me think about, you know, the, the parents. They didn't just lose the two boys, in a well, sense. The mother, her husband, Joseph yeah. Sr., is already gone. Yeah, so and Joseph Sr. was a, a witness, but... Yeah, Mother Smith, she she lost Joseph and Hiram, but she also lost Samuel. And Don Carlos a year or two before. It, it was a, a, a lot of trying times. She could have very easily lost her witness of the work, but certainly didn't seem to, to lose that. Uh, it's a lot of trials surrounding the early church. Um, but in particular, again, we have, uh, we have this work from Richard L. Anderson, who is essentially taking a very scholarly approach to the arguments against the eight witnesses. And it's, again, as you said, an example of his work that shows the ability to use scholarship in a way that seems to be very effective at defending faith. Mm-hmm. We're good for Richard L. Anderson and for what he did. And we uh, hope his example continues to stand for Latter-day Saints. Yeah. And uh, we hope that his final project, those Oliver Cowdery papers, will be able to be to be done that one day and dedicated to him. Yeah, absolutely. So here we are. We're going to do a reading now in uh, in honor of Richard L. Anderson of his work from the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies in 2005 entitled Attempts to Redefine the Experience of the Eight Witnesses. And again, we want to thank the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for their allowing us to do this reading. Attempts to Redefine the Experience of the Eight Witnesses by Richard Lloyd Anderson Originally published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies An angel showed the Book of Mormon plates to the three witnesses who heard God's voice declare the translation correct. But the eight witnesses report handling the plates under natural circumstances, describing color, substantial weight, individual leaves with engraved writings, and careful craftsmanship throughout. Critics have reacted variously to such physical language. Some see the eight witnesses as participants in a fraud, but their lives do not fit that mold since all suffered in the severe persecutions of early Mormonism and not one reversed his written testimony. Other critics acknowledge sincerity and suppose Joseph Smith constructed an imitation. But the eight witnesses were tradesmen and farmers who worked with materials and would recognize a clumsy counterfeit. More recent skeptics advance a double theory. Number one, that at various times Joseph Smith allowed the eight men to lift but not see a heavy covered object. Or two, that these men testified of seeing plates because of a vision induced by enthusiasm or mind control. This theory is showcased by arbitrary interpretation of very few documents. This article discusses sources that have been misused 
in attempts to reverse the eight witnesses' statement about their physical contact with the ancient record. The official testimonies of the three and eight witnesses are strengthened by a third tier of witnesses, family members, who had contact with the plates as Joseph brought them into his New York farm home, as well as scribes who worked around the plates in the translation process. William Smith was 16 when his older brother outran pursuers and breathlessly carried the covered metal record into the house. William recounted lifting the plates that night, saying several times that they weighed about 60 pounds. In a pulpit speech, William told of feeling their outlines through cloth wrappings. They were not quite as large as this Bible. Could tell they were round or square. Could raise the leaves this way, raising a few leaves of the Bible before him. And he added detail in an interview, I could tell they were plates of some kind and that they were fastened together by rings running through the back. As an early secretary for her husband, Emma Smith remembered how the covered plates were on the translating table and she sometimes moved them, and once felt their shape through the linen covering. They seemed to be pliable, like thick paper, and would rustle with a metallic sound when the edges were moved by the thumb. These family descriptions closely correlate with the written testimony of eight witnesses, showing that the current theory of a visual illusion is out of touch with the realities of the translation period. Since this subjective concept relies heavily on statements of Martin Harris, it is important to clarify two types of experience he had with the plates. Of course, Martin was one of the three witnesses who saw the angel and plates in 1829. This visitation came to Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer, and David clarified that they saw but did not handle the plates at that time. About an hour afterward, the visitation came to Martin and Joseph, and Joseph said the first experience was repeated. Thus, Martin Harris saw the bare plates when the angel showed them to the three witnesses. By contrast, Martin was also Joseph Smith's first scribe, and his comments about covered plates no doubt come from that early period. He said, I hefted the plates many times and should think they weighed 40 or 50 pounds. Much later, he told a newspaper editor that the plates weighed altogether from 40 to 60 pounds. This early assistant said that he and his family lifted the plates in a box when first investigating Joseph's story, and he held the plates on his knee while hiding them in the forest with Joseph. Judged by other sources, the record was wrapped at that time. Martin regularly said he saw the plates, and sometimes he said he saw the plates covered. This is not contradictory because these remarks relate to different occasions during the translation. Attempts to Repackage the Eight Witnesses' Testimony In contrast to seeing a covered record, the eight witnesses speak of viewing the plates themselves with unobstructed vision, noting they had the appearance of gold, of ancient work, of curious workmanship. In their official testimony, they looked closely at the engravings while turning the leaves, seeing and handling at the same time. Thus, the published testimony contradicts the current subjective theory which asserts the eight men saw the plates in a mystic group experience, but handled them only on other occasions when they were covered. Dan Vogel and Grant H. Palmer give variations of this basic theory, though predecessors published similar arguments. Both authors are noted for challenging the objective reality of Joseph Smith's founding visions. Palmer largely avoids statements from the witnesses, but concludes that the eight, like the three, 
saw and scrutinized the plates in a mind vision. He downgrades Joseph Smith's own story by repeating rumors and folklore about how the prophet found and returned the plates. Thus, he paints the Book of Mormon witnesses as simplistic believers who possessed the shared magical perspective of their culture. After discovering the inner workings of their minds, he concludes that these witnesses thought the spiritual was material, meaning that their official statement sounded more physical than was intended. So, reinterpreting the testimony of eight witnesses is really based on knowing their mindset instead of focusing on what they repeatedly said about their experience. Vogel's approach to the eight witnesses matches Palmer's, though with more detailed speculation. He starts with flat disbelief. There is simply no reliable proof for the existence of the supernatural. Reading Vogel on the Book of Mormon Witnesses, therefore, is tracking a conclusion in search of evidence. In his writing, no witnesses saw a divine vision or examined an authentic ancient artifact. In explaining the experience of the eight witnesses, Vogel uses little material from these men, though he has collected most of their published testimonies. In all his explanations, the eight witnesses saw the plates only through imagination, what he calls a visionary experience. As for holding the plates, he apparently prefers the possibility of lifting a weighted box with something like group hypnosis, persuading the eight men that they viewed the plates through the lid of a box. This concept comes with a second possibility of how Joseph Smith might have convinced the eight witnesses there were plates. Quote, they saw them in vision, but handled them in a box or while covered on some previous occasion, end quote. However, Lucy Max Smith refutes a split experience of seeing on one day and lifting the plates at an earlier time. Of course, she knew her family had picked up the covered metal object that Joseph brought home in 1827, but she describes an additional formal inspection by the eight witnesses as the translation was ending. Mother Smith was present when the three witnesses returned to the rural Whitmer home and reported their gratitude on seeing the angel and the plates. She then describes surrounding circumstances as the Smiths returned some 30 miles to their residence south of Palmyra Village. Her unedited manuscript picks up the story as follows, omitting only her quotation of the written testimony of the eight witnesses. In a few days we were followed by Joseph and Oliver, and the Whitmers, who came to make us a visit and also to make some arrangements about getting the book printed soon after they came. They all, that is the male part of the company, repaired to a little grove where it was customary for the family to offer up their secret prayers, as Joseph had been instructed that the plates would be carried there by one of the ancient Nephites. Here it was that those eight witnesses recorded in the Book of Mormon looked upon the plates and handled them of which they bear witness in the following words. After the witnesses returned to the house, the angel again made his appearance to Joseph and received the plates from his hands. We commenced holding meetings that night, in the which we declared those facts that we knew to be true. During these events of late June 1829, Lucy again resided in her smaller log home, which was then crowded with guests, and she would know when a group of men left to examine the plates and when they returned to the house. Mother Smith's history states that the eight witnesses all saw and handled the plates on the same date. She further states that their joint testimony was drawn up to report their experience in the grove on that occasion. 
she insists that they looked upon the plates and handled them near her house on that day. An understanding gained from observation, conversation, and hearing the eight witnesses in the evening meeting when all declared those facts that we knew to be true. The Turley Report and John Whitmer's Other Statements This and the next section will discuss the evidence offered by the subjective school. Palmer believes that all of the witnesses seem to have seen the records with their spiritual eyes and inspected them in the context of a vision, apparently never having actually possessed or touched them. And Vogel broadly equates the experience of the eight witnesses with that of the three witnesses, who he thinks describe an event of a subjective nature that fits the illusion of a group hallucination. Thus, the experiences of the eight men were apparently visionary in nature, similar to the experiences of the three witnesses. Use of one source shows how little real evidence supports the subjective theory regarding the eight witnesses. Vogel revives an anecdote of Illinois Governor Thomas Ford, who says Joseph Smith admitted isolating a few followers and whipping up faith and guilt until they imagined they saw gold plates in an empty box. But serious readers want accurate reports from eyewitnesses or those who can responsibly report what eyewitnesses say. In this case, Ford said his information came from men who were once in the confidence of the prophet. One immediately thinks of turncoat John C. Bennett and his exaggerations, as well as several ex-Mormons around Ford at the martyrdom who were characterized by John Taylor as some of the vilest and most unprincipled men in creation. Ford's story traces to no reliable source and appears to be outright folklore. Vogel admits it lacks credibility, but trusts it for insight. Quote, The details transmitted by Ford may be inaccurate, but the essence of the account contains an element of truth. Vogel's use of the inaccurate story is just because the governor's account is similar to the claims that dissident Mormons in Ohio and Missouri were making in 1838. But slander circulating in one location is not proved true by similar slanders developed elsewhere, as the history of political campaigns shows. Revisionists offer but one interview with a witness to support their view of a mental mirage. As the Mormons were forced from Missouri in 1839, Theodore Turley temporarily remained as a church business agent and was visited by several residents, including John Whitmer, who had been excommunicated the year before. The hostile group ridiculed Turley's belief in the Book of Mormon, but he confronted John Whitmer with inconsistency. Turley later reconstructed the rest of the conversation. Whitmer asked, Do you hint at me? Turley replied, If the cap fits, you wear it. All I know, you have published to the world that an angel did present those plates to Joseph Smith. Whitmer replied, I now say I handled those plates. There were fine engravings on both sides. I handled them. And he described how they were hung, and they were shown to me by a supernatural power. He acknowledged all. Turley asked him why the translation is not now true, and he said, I cannot read it, and I do not know whether it is true or not. One statement here becomes a pillar for the theory of visionary plates. They were shown to me by a supernatural power. Vogel insists this would suggest something other than a normal, physical experience. And Palmer echoes this added detail of how he saw 
indicates that the eight probably did not observe or feel the actual artifact. But a strange added detail is a red flag. David Whitmer often complained of misquotation in his many interviews. Here the concept of miraculous display differs from all other John Whitmer accounts. Vogel prints relevant parts of 15 interviews with John Whitmer. My file contains an additional eight reports of John's own testimony of the Book of Mormon. The total is 23 reports from this last survivor of the eight witnesses. Many are brief and general, but when details are given, they speak of seeing and or handling as a normal event, except for Turley's phrase, supernatural power, and Joshua Davis's recollection that John declared, I, with my own eyes, saw the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated, and I also saw an angel who witnessed to the truth of the Book of Mormon. But John Whitmer's own words counter the odd particulars in these two reports. As official church historian, he named the three witnesses into whose presence the angel of God came and showed them the plates, the ball, the directors, etc. He then named himself and seven others, to whom Joseph Smith Jr. showed the plates. Since John Whitmer personally states that the angel appeared only to the three witnesses, Davis obviously got that detail wrong in reporting what John told him. And six statements from John Whitmer speak of handling the plates, including the full Turley reference, and John's editorial farewell in the church newspaper stating that I have most assuredly seen the plates from whence the Book of Mormon translated, and that I have handled these plates. So John Whitmer claimed to handle the plates as Joseph Smith showed them, but not to behold them as displayed by an angel. Though interviews may be quite accurate, they are not transcripts. Davis correctly gave John's statement about seeing the plates, but confused the testimonies of the three and the eight witnesses concerning seeing an angel. So the Davis interview shows the fallacy of proof texting with a single phrase suggesting the marvelous. Turley remembered John Whitmer as saying the plates were shown to him by a supernatural power. But as just stated, in his church history, John noted that Joseph Smith personally showed the plates to the eight witnesses, which agrees with their testimony printed in the Book of Mormon. However, Turley erroneously thought the published statement of the eight witnesses testified of the miraculous, telling John, You have published to the world that an angel did present those plates to Joseph Smith. When Turley challenged John to be consistent with his written testimony, John reinforced the physical terms in that document. I now say I handled those plates. There was fine engravings on both sides. I handled them. On the other hand, the phrasing supernatural power corresponds with Turley's preconception, not the written testimony that John was supporting. Thus, the idea of a supernormal event evidently came from the interviewer since John only indicates natural circumstances in other statements referring to the eight witnesses' group experience with the plates themselves. The rest of Turley's report blends with the witnesses' declaration and with John Whitmer's other five statements that he handled the plates. Burnett's Hearsay Report and Testimonies of Handling Besides misusing the Turley report, revisionists mainly rely on an 1838 letter of former missionary Stephen Burnett which mentions two linked occasions when he heard Martin Harris discuss his own experience and that of the eight witnesses. 
But Burnett's letter is hostile and accusatory, adding distracting static to the line of information. Warren Parrish also mentions Harris's initial comments and thereby clarifies how disbelievers reinterpreted the witnesses' printed testimonies. Parrish opposed Joseph Smith after the Kirtland Bank failed in 1837. A national depression followed that summer, and a counterparty proclaimed Joseph Smith a fallen prophet, resulting in the December excommunication of Parrish and about two dozen associates, which probably included Stephen Burnett. Martin Harris first discussed the witness testimonies about mid-March, 1838. Then, seceders Burnett and Parrish gave their versions of what Harris said, and the following comes from Parrish, though it is unclear whether he personally heard the Book of Mormon witness. Quote, Martin Harris, one of the subscribing witnesses, has come out at last and says he never saw the plates from which the book purports to have been translated, except in vision, and he further says that any man who says he has seen them in any other way is a liar. Joseph not accepted. See New Edition Book of Covenants, page 170, which agrees with Harris's testimony. End quote. On scores of documented occasions, Martin Harris insisted he saw the angel and the plates. So if Harris used the word vision to describe the three witnesses' experience, he would have meant there was a real visit of an angel, mirroring the normal usage of vision in the New Testament and other scriptures. But Parrish used a skeptic's definition, referring to what is now section 17 of the Doctrine and Covenants, to show that faith was required to see the plates, which proved to Parrish that preconditioning produced a religious delusion. The approach was not new. For example, Ezra Booth left the church in 1831 and admitted that the three witnesses frequently testified that an angel appeared and presented them the golden plates. Yet when he discovered that Doctrine and Covenants section 17 promised the three witnesses a view of the Nephite artifacts if they had faith, he concluded this meant that the witnesses saw the plates by faith or imagination. Booth's slanted reasoning was inspired in Howe's anti-Mormon work of 1834 and sounds like a prompt book for Burnett and Parrish interpreting Harris in 1838. As indicated, Stephen Burnett heard Harris's first comments in mid-March, and a week later he renounced the Book of Mormon in the Kirtland Temple, with Harris protesting he was misunderstood. Afterward, Burnett reported both occasions in his partisan letter. Following are the relevant portions. Quote, when I came to hear Martin Harris state in public that he never saw the plates with his natural eyes, only in vision or imagination, neither Oliver nor David, and also that the eight witnesses never saw them and hesitated to sign that instrument for that reason, but were persuaded to do it, the last pedestal gave way. I therefore, three weeks since, in the stone chapel, gave a full history of the church since I became acquainted with it. I was followed by W. Parrish, Luke Johnson, and John Boynton, all who concurred with me. After we were done speaking, M. Harris arose and said he was sorry for any man who rejected the Book of Mormon, for he knew it was true. He said he had hefted the plates repeatedly in a box, with only a tablecloth or handkerchief over them but he never saw them only as he saw a city through a mountain. And he said that he never should have told that the testimony of the eight witnesses was false if it had not been picked out of him, but should have let it pass as it was. I am well satisfied for myself 
that it was the witnesses whose names are attached to the Book of Mormon never saw the plates, as Martin admits, that there can be nothing brought to prove that any such thing ever existed, for it is said on the 171st page of the Book of Covenants that three should testify that they had seen the plates, even as Joseph Smith Jr., and if they only saw them spiritually or in vision with their eyes shut, Joseph Smith Jr. never saw them in any other way. If so, the plates were only visionary. End quote. The two-stage interaction with Harris is clear in Burnett's letter. He first heard what he considered a shocking admission of Harris, which was obviously repeated as the centerpiece of Burnett's exposure in the later temple meeting. However, Harris's response in the second stage represents his true attitude, since Harris said his earlier words were misused. This shows that caution is required in quoting Burnett's version of any of Harris's words. Burnett's bias is clear in reporting Harris's original remarks, where the witnesses supposedly acknowledged he saw the plates in vision or imagination. Yet the word imagination would not have come from Harris, who later wrote, No man ever heard me in any way deny the administration of the angel that showed me the plates. Moreover, Burnett ends with an interpretive paraphrase of Harris, for there is no parallel for the witness equating seeing in vision with having their eyes shut. These pseudo-quotations are conclusions of the liberated Mormons for whom a vision was by definition an illusion produced by blind faith. And in reporting Harris's first curtly remarks on the plates, Burnett went further to claim that Harris said the eight witnesses never saw them, meaning that they saw them only as did the three witnesses, in vision or imagination. But the reader comes closer to Harris's true views when Burnett reports Martin's later rebuttal. The second meeting was held in the temple in late March 1838, when Burnett no doubt stressed the central argument of his letter, that the plates were only visionary. He was followed by Parrish, whose letter embraced the same theory, and then ex-apostles Boynton and Luke Johnson. Finally, Martin Harris stood and said that he had hefted the plates repeatedly. This clearly countered the dissenter's visionary theory, which shows that the physical reality of the plates was Harris's theme in the second meeting. He had actually held them, with only a tablecloth or handkerchief over them, but he never saw them only as he saw a city through a mountain. In this context, Harris was not talking of a testimony of seeing the angel in plates, but speaking of the other times when he knew the plates were under a tablecloth or handkerchief, probably the experience that he and Emma shared during the 1828 translation, as discussed near the beginning of this paper. At the follow-up meeting, Harris modified his initial comments on the eight witnesses. As noted, Burnett claimed that Harris first said that the group saw the plates only in vision. Three months before, Epsiber Richards pictured the Kirtland religious climate. Quote, A large number have dissented from the body of the church and are very violent in their opposition to the presidency and all who uphold them. End quote. Harris fraternized with the reorganizers but drew scorn for believing the Book of Mormon. Burnett's letter indicates that the witness explained he had given an earlier answer under pressure. This means that Harris's corrections in the second meeting supersede the earlier, non-physical language. On reflection, Harris said that he never should have told that the testimony of the eight witnesses was false, if it had not been picked out of him 
but should have let it pass as it was. To Vogel, this means that Harris expressed regret about revealing the true nature of the experience of the eight witnesses. But the context is Harris is straightening out Burnett by adding his own testimony that there were physical plates. If we compensate for Burnett's loaded language, Harris's retraction was essentially this. He never would have agreed that the eight witnesses saw the plates through spiritual sight if he had not been confused by leading questions, but would have let their written testimony speak for itself. Vogel thinks the Harris disclosure theory is validated because Harris knew the eight witnesses and their experience, but this view widely misses the point. The real question is whether Burnett quoted Harris accurately. The answer is that Burnett continued to believe in a visionary experience for the eight witnesses even after Harris said he had given the wrong impression on that issue. Since Harris insisted he had hefted the plates repeatedly in a box, he disagreed with Burnett's spiritualizing of the eight witnesses' experience. Burnett's report of Harris's quoting them is not only compound hearsay, but hearsay rejected by its author. Six of the eight witnesses were still alive by March 1838, but all were either in Missouri or traveling there. Hiram Smith was the last to leave Kirtland, and his group stopped at the home of Sally Parker in central Ohio. Later, she sent a letter to relatives in Maine, knowing they had been exposed to messages from Kirtland dissenters. She mentioned the opposition by Parrish and Boynton, and reflected back on the faith-promoting visit of Hiram Smith, who gave his personal testimony. Quote, We was talking about the Book of Mormon, which he is one of the witnesses. He said he had but two hands and two eyes. He said he had seen the plates with his eyes and handled them with his hands. End quote. Two other solid sources report this language from Hiram in this period. Hiram married Mary Fielding at the end of 1837, and a little later, her brother Joseph wrote, quote, My sister bears testimony that her husband has seen and handled the plates. End quote. After his ordeal in Liberty Jail was over, Hiram was still sensitive to the slanders of the Kirtland dissenters, wrote to his fellow church members, starting his letter with specific reference to giving my testimony to the world of the truth of the Book of Mormon. After narrating persecutions, he returned to his published testimony. I felt a determination to die rather than deny the things which my eyes had seen, which my hands had handled, and which I had borne testimony to, wherever my lot had been cast. This means that many times in several states, Hiram testified to handling the plates. His brother Samuel gave the same oral testimony. Daniel Tyler was 15 and intensely religious when he heard Samuel simply tell his story. He knew his brother Joseph had the plates, for the prophet had shown them to him, and he handled them and seen the engravings thereon. The eight witnesses left ten specific statements of handling the plates the above four from Samuel and Hiram, and six among the John Whitmer reports. Vogel quotes eight of the ten handling statements and adds the disturbing comment, quote, As can be seen, except for Polson's late interview with John Whitmer, specific declarations by the witnesses about handling the plates are few and vague, end quote. The basic reliability of Polson's interview will be discussed next. But if it is not counted, the remaining nine references to handling the plates are more than few. Nor is the word handling vague. Smith family members such as William and Emma describe their limited examination of the covered plates. But in print and in interviews, 
the eight witnesses speak of unlimited direct contact, not a vision of the plates with previous experiences of lifting them when covered. In fact, two observers note the experience was not strung out over time. As discussed earlier, Lucy Smith states she was present as Whitmer family members, along with her husband and two sons, left her log home for forest privacy on the special day when the eight witnesses looked upon the plates and examined them. Likewise, David Whitmer was present and or aware of these circumstances, stating that the eight men became witnesses on a particular date. After recalling that the three witnesses saw the plates in late June, David explained that the eight witnesses saw them, I think the next day or the day after. Joseph showed them the plates himself, but the angel showed us the plates. Thus, David Whitmer also pictures the experience of eight witnesses as an event on a given date when the plates were shown by Joseph, not a divine being. John Whitmer's Comprehensive Interview Subjective interpreters seek to disqualify John Whitmer's most informative interview. P. Wilhelm Polson visited both John and David Whitmer in Upper Missouri in 1878, sending his account to the Deseret News that summer. Polson had presided over the Copenhagen district from 1861 to 1863 when he came to the United States and was named secretary for his emigrating company. He became a homeopathic physician and practiced in Salt Lake City. Council Bluffs, and the San Francisco area. He was doing psychic analysis by late 1873 and expanded this spiritualistic activity up to later years when he published spirit messages from notable Mormons and non-Mormons. He settled in Council Bluffs during the period of his Whitmer interviews, both of which accurately described families and activities of David and John Whitmer. Polson was interested in the Smith family, and Joseph Smith III accepted a guarded friendship with him. Soon after Polson's Whitmer interviews, Joseph III said he was a man of ability and learning, is and has been for some years a spiritualist. Though Polson became an eccentric and fictionalized his background, his ability as a reporter is the main issue in evaluating his interviews with David and John Whitmer. He visited them as an educated person and religious eclectic, evidently seeking to preserve the stories of the last surviving Book of Mormon witnesses. Revisionists consider Polson's report as perhaps suspect, since John Whitmer was dead at the time of publication, and David Whitmer complained about the accuracy of Polson's interview with him. The first problem is trivial. Polson interviewed John in Missouri in April 1878. John died in July and Polson sent the interview to the Deseret News from Idaho at the end of that month. The delay is reasonable and John's death unpredictable. Regarding accuracy, after the David Whitmer interview appeared in the Deseret News, that witness answered a question about it from L.F. Monch, probably capable Ogden educator Louis F. Monch. David said Polson did not get one of his answers straight. I surely did not make the statement which you say he reports me to have made. It is unknown which statement is meant, but critics are sloppy in stating that David complained about the whole interview. Instead, he corrected one issue in a report consisting of answers to 20 questions. Similarly, David corrected many details in his 1881 Kansas City Journal interview, pronouncing the rest substantially correct. In the Polson interview, about two-thirds of what David reportedly said is corroborated by what he said in other published interviews. Most of the other third 
being new material that cannot be compared for consistency. So Polson's report of his interview about John Whitmer likely reflected a similarly high degree of accuracy. In questioning John Whitmer, Polson concentrated on the tangibility of the metal record. And a similar question to David Whitmer shows the interviewer was careful on this topic. Polson apparently visited David first, and he was obviously interested in the materiality of each brother's experience. When Polson asked David if the eight witnesses did not handle the plates, David responded, We did not, but they did. Here, Polson accurately reports David since later in careful interviews with David, as those of Zenas H. Gurley and Nathan Tanner Jr. also report that the three witnesses did not handle the plates. Polson's dialogue with John follows here. Quote, I said, I am aware that your name is affixed to the testimony in the Book of Mormon, that you saw the plates. It is so, and that testimony is true. Did you handle the plates with your hands? I did so. Then they were a material substance. Yes, as material as anything can be. They were heavy to lift? Yes, and you know gold is a heavy metal. They were very heavy. How big were the leaves? So far as I recollect, eight by six or seven inches. Were the leaves thick? Yes, just so thick that characters could be engraven on both sides. How were the leaves joined together? In three rings, each one in the shape of a D with the straight line towards the center. Did you see them covered with a cloth? No, he handed them uncovered into our hands and we turned the leaves sufficient to satisfy us. End quote. These seven related answers are impressive on the solid substance of the plates. On the other hand, there are two problematic answers on surrounding circumstances, although they do not invalidate a long interview. Polson's account contains minor differences with Lucy Smith's history regarding place and grouping. Following are the two answers that were omitted from the above line of questions. Quote, In what place did you see the plates? In Joseph Smith's house, he had them there. Were you all eight witnesses present at the same time? No. At that time, Joseph showed the plates to us. We were four persons present in the room, and at another time, he showed them to four persons more. End quote. As discussed, Lucy Max Smith said the eight witnesses left her house for a grove, a likely location because that day many Whitmers and Hiram Page were at the small home that the Smith family had recently reoccupied. John Whitmer possibly said something like, at Joseph Smith's house, meaning to him that the eight witnesses viewed the plates on that property. And Polson's report that the plates were viewed by two groups of four is an odd detail, possibly an error in the interview process. Mother Smith's history should have priority as being firsthand. Nevertheless, Lucy's history harmonizes with the rest of the answers in the Polson interview which clearly state that the men handled uncovered plates in the presence of others. Miscounted Interviews and the Printed Testimony More people sought out the three witnesses because they had seen a brilliant angel. Even though the eight witnesses left fewer interviews, they adequately describe a simple, natural experience. Subjective interpreters seek to replace a material event with a psychic event, and they minimize how much the eight witnesses said about examining the plates. 
Vogel generalizes, individual statements by the eight witnesses are rare due largely to their early deaths. This statement prefaces the listing of two group testimonies and 17 times when one of the eight witnesses explained or validated his published testimony or when family members said he was always faithful to it. Thus, rare is inaccurate, especially since this source scholar has added six John Whitmer interviews to the above inventory. And there are a number of other known contacts beyond this. For instance, Vogel writes, no known testimonies by the names of Christian and Peter Whitmer. Yet, the later accompanied Oliver Cowdery on the Western Mission in 1830 to 1831, when investigator Lyman White attended a meeting where one testified that he had seen angels and another that he had seen the plates. Another omission is Zenas H. Gurley's collection of visiting John Whitmer about 1872. Quote, he had seen the plates, and it was his especial pride and joy that he had written 60 pages on the Book of Mormon. End quote. In addition, Edward Stevenson recalled hearing testimonies from the prophet's father and brother, Hiram. And the sons of Jacob Whitmer, John Whitmer, and Hiram Page heard their father's testimonies at least once in life, as well as once before their deaths. We now can document 42 instances when one of the eight witnesses restated his testimony with the printed declaration of that testimony mentioned or understood in the statement or conversation. Yet personal statements or reports are only part of the story of the eight witnesses. Their relatives said they affirmed their experience throughout life, showing they were deeply impressed by what they had seen and hefted. When word reached Kirtland about the deaths of Christian and Peter Whitmer Jr., brother-in-law Oliver Cowdery wrote that they proclaimed to their last moments the certainty of their former testimony. Thus, these brothers regularly validated their formal group statement. Sons and nephews of Jacob Whitmer, John Whitmer, and Hiram Page gave similar cumulative accounts. Likewise, Samuel Smith's obituary noted his steadfastness as one of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. And William Smith included his father and brothers in saying that all of the eight witnesses testified that they not only saw with their eyes, but handled with their hands the said record. Nor has either or any one of these witnesses ever to my knowledge counteracted the testimony as given above concerning the real existence of these Mormon tablets. The above family observations point to hundreds of times when the eight witnesses stood by their written declaration. And thoughtful converts, such as the Pratt brothers, John Corll and William E. McClellan, recount how they systematically questioned each Book of Mormon witness at the outset. McClellan later said, quote, When I first joined the church in 1831, soon I became acquainted with all the Smith family and the Whitmer families, and I heard all their testimonies, which agreed in the main points, and I believed them then, and I believe them yet, end quote. McClellan was a schoolteacher in eastern Illinois who attended Mormon meetings as teams of elders traveled from Ohio to Missouri to participate in dedicating that land for the gathering. He heard David Whitmer's testimony of seeing an angel and was so impressed that he rode across two states to western Missouri, just missing the prophet, but spending time with David Whitmer and Martin Harris, and then conversing with Hiram Smith for four hours, which McClellan described as follows, quote, I inquired into the particulars of the coming forth of the record, of the rise of the church, and of its progress and upon the testimonies given to him. End quote. 
McClellan was baptized and ordained an elder before returning east as Hiram's missionary companion. At Jacksonville, Illinois, both spoke on the validity of the Book of Mormon, with William first giving a picture of the buried book as he learned about it from two of the three witnesses, and especially from questioning Hiram. Quote, a set of thin plates resembling gold, with Arabic characters inscribed on them. The plates were minutely described as being connected with the rings in the shape of the letter D, which facilitated the opening and shutting of the book. End quote. The description of D rings is unusual and confirms the same point in John Whitmer's interview with Wilhelm Poulsen, who wrote down specifics of a direct examination of an uncovered metallic volume. The printed testimony of eight witnesses is the centerpiece for the nature of their experience. Current arguments for a subjective event read like a study of U.S. constitutional law that rarely mentions the Constitution. Revisionists virtually set aside this definitive source on examining the plates. In quick review, two main documents are used to transform handling the plates into a vision of the plates. Both documents are flawed. The Burnett letter contains irresponsible hearsay about the eight witnesses, and the Turley dialogue begins with the interviewer's misconception that John Whitmer's written testimony spoke of the supernatural. Judged by the number of surviving interviews with the eight witnesses, odds are about 40 to 1 that Turley misquoted John Whitmer on a miraculous viewing of the plates. Ironically, the main point of Turley's interviews is that John Whitmer still upheld his written testimony twice, saying he handled the plates. Although current critics claim a conflict between later sources and the original published testimony, its accuracy is the stated or implied theme of all interviews with the eight witnesses. In 1847, McClellan asked Hiram Page about his faith in the Book of Mormon and received this reply, quote, It would be doing injustice to myself and to the work of God of the last days, to say that I could know a thing to be true in 1830 and know the same thing to be false in 1847. To say my mind was so treacherous that I had forgotten what I saw. End quote. This answer is seen as evidence that Page did not handle the plates, but the reverse is true. Page here insists he cannot modify the published statement. A correspondent in Salem, Massachusetts, referred to hearing Hiram Smith declare in this city in public that what is recorded about the plates, etc., etc., is God's solemn truth, end quote. Here Hiram refers to his published testimony in the Book of Mormon, as did John Whitmer repeatedly. E.C. Brand visited him in 1875 and wrote that John declared that his testimony, as found in the testimony of eight witnesses in the Book of Mormon, is strictly true. Among the 42 statements or personal reports from the eight witnesses, 39% give some detail of the experience, such as seeing, handling, or lifting. And, as discussed, 10 of these mention handling the plates. The above assertions of Hiram Page, Hiram Smith, and John Whitmer give a different kind of response, a report of the witness expressly affirming the printed testimony. These simple reaffirmations are 33% of the total. Since the original testimony refers to a material event, such restatements do the same and therefore qualify as physical descriptions. Thus, over two-thirds of the statements or interviews of the eight witnesses are in fact physical descriptions. 
The remaining interviews are generic assurances of continued belief in the Book of Mormon, which are essentially shorthand reaffirmations of their published testimony. Finally, advocates of a group illusion for the eight witnesses admit that the original declaration seems to describe a literal event, and its language implies a natural physical experience. No evidence to the contrary can be shown to come from the witnesses themselves, so seems and implies should be deleted from these statements. The well-considered published testimony states that Joseph Smith, not an induced apparition, has shown unto us a box or heavy bundle, but the plates with the observable color and engravings with leaves that we did handle with our hands. Moreover, a group event is pictured for all these actions, not individual contacts with covered plates over a period of time. The essence of the written testimony is Joseph Smith's showing of the plates, repeated twice for emphasis, each time followed by how the record was physically examined while being observed. These emphatic redundancies first state that the witnesses saw engravings on the gold-like leaves as they turned them, with the simple restatement that the volume was seen and hefted. The document affirmations of the eight witnesses include personal writings from three who in their own phrases verified their official statement published in 1830. Four of these direct statements are discussed above but are summarized here. As church historian John Whitmer wrote that the three witnesses knew for a surety because the angel supernaturally showed them the plates, and John added by contrast that he was one of eight men to whom Joseph Smith Sr. showed the plates. Similarly, in early church newspapers, John Whitmer and Hiram Smith mentioned their written testimonies, adding that they had both seen and handled the plates. Hiram Page wrote to William McClellan stating that he could not change his printed testimony. In addition to these four testimonies penned by three of the eight witnesses, near the end of his life John Whitmer reinforced his prior written comments about seeing and handling the plates, sending three personal letters in answer to inquiries of reorganized church missionaries. In mid-1876, he told Mark H. Forscutt, quote, I have never heard that any one of these three or eight witnesses ever denied the testimony that they have borne to the book as published in the first edition of the Book of Mormon, end quote. And in late 1876, John Whitmer answered Herman C. Smith, referring to the published declaration and concluding, That testimony was, is, and will be true, henceforth and forever. Finally, John Whitmer responded, to an 1877 letter concerning my testimony as recorded in the Book of Mormon. John wrote, quote, It is the same as it was from the beginning, and it is true. I have never denied my testimony as to the Book of Mormon, under any circumstances whatever. End quote. All of these first-hand statements add no adorning spiritual details, but establish a standard of comparison for dozens of reports mediated by interviewers. The above seven personal reiterations combined with the published testimony of eight witnesses in direct evidence that Joseph Smith did possess a finely constructed and engraved book with multiple leaves of deep yellow material. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rare Possessions Podcast. 
Please tune in each week for another episode where we dig deep into the archives of Book of Mormon Central with your hosts Nick Galetti and Jared Riddick. For more information, visit us at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org. Thank you.